Use my name. The street. Talk, motherfucker. My name is my name. You're listening to My Name Is My Name with APS. On today's show, I talk with Robin James. It has been some time since this conversation with Robin. And for that, I apologize, but to Robin more than anyone else, a lot has happened since the last podcast. Over the summer, I participated in training to begin teaching in jails and prisons. I've still not been able to fully think through that experience yet, though what I was taught about teaching from the incarcerated educators remains the most pedagogical training I've ever received. It was also the only graduation ceremony I have attended since high school. It meant a lot to me that they would give me such gifts, and it was a really beautiful moment in my life. But it was ambiguous. It was, after all, in an American prison, and many of my teachers are dying a death by incarceration. I live in one of the few states that still locks up those juveniles uh, put in prison between the 70s, 80s, and 90s, and it locked those juveniles up for life. And so the condition for this quasi-sociality that we shared was one of horrific violence. You line up, you get stamped as you sign in, five or ten at a time, depending on the prerogative of the CO that day, or how annoyed he or she is by the liberal do-gooders coming into, and I quote, my house. Then another gate opens and you enter the holding area. In the summer, the noise from the extractor fans is deafening. I had headaches pretty much every time. and. You wait until the rest of the group is there. You are surrounded by mail the incarcerated have sent out or tried to, since some of the dates are from two months prior. And you first see how your very presence is a kind of violence as incarcerated faces look out of a porthole window, unable to return from their visitations while free citizens are waiting in the holding area. Then, when the gate opens, you walk. This institution is different from many modern prisons arranged in micro-panopticons as pods. This is a telephone model, so you walk down the long hall with cell blocks coming off. The incarcerated men never act like they do in sensationalist TV shows. Hopefully, I don't have to tell you that. But I can imagine that those scared straight programs are a nice outlet for acting talent that has gone untapped, that has been wasted by being locked up. Instead, in the real prison, it is just life, albeit tightly and exceptionally controlled. So as you walk down the hall, you see what you know from books, but did not really know. This is a racist institution, even if there are black COs. And then you notice, as you're walking, the factory wings between the cell blocks, the cages they put men in 
the factories they're not really paid to work in. And you know what the 13th Amendment said, but you didn't know. Then, at the end of the hall, you see your teachers in the colors of this institution, and they welcome you with a hospitality at least I've only really read about in scriptures. They become mentors and that strange sort of friend that is mediated and made alien through that mediation of this institution. But it is real nonetheless. You hope, you don't know. Then when it's time to leave, they leave first. And you pantomime hugging each other because this institution says these are not humans. You can't touch them that way. They can't touch you that way. There's a fear of the kind of sexuality of such intimate touching. And you come out early and you see some of them still being searched by a line of COs. And apparently I accepted my institutionalization too easily and so I go up to a CO and ask if he needs to search me, my arms outstretched. He laughs. Then you see them through the glass of the heavy door to their block. And some wave, some have their fists up in salute, a call to be something more than what we are. Well-meaning educators in a work camp with a concentrated population. One of the teachers holds up a copy of Vandana Shiva's books and mouths, read this. He is one of the truest intellectuals I've ever met. I told him earlier that our conversations were what I thought grad school was going to be like, but my grad school wasn't anything like it. There, after passing them, you are again in the holding area, being processed out, and the tears you had been holding back come a little bit, but you can already feel the disassociation. How else to feel? You're gonna go grab some food, you're gonna stand in the sun, and they are not free. You leave the work camp. They live in it under threat of a more immediate death. And yes, they resist, but they are still being wasted, even as wealth is extracted from them. To say otherwise, to speak of their resistance for them, is to commit the grossest secular theodicy. All right, my conversation with Robin James. What first got you interested in philosophy? Well, thanks for having me on. I'm excited to talk. Um, so my... Well, everyone's story in the philosophy is usually a little convoluted, right? Rarely do people start out in philosophy. I started out college as an oboe major. I thought I wanted to be a band director. <laughs> um, but uh, I went to Miami of Ohio, not Florida, um, because I didn't want to go to a conservatory. I wanted to get um, a liberal arts education as well, right? You know, I wanted to not just practice, but also read things. And it ended up that I found out that I wanted to read things more than I wanted to practice. <laughs> um, so I was a music major and I was taking my music classes, but I was also in um, Shannon Sullivan's intro class my first year in college. 
And that's when I sort of discovered philosophy and what it was. And I was like, wow, I'm spending all of my time doing my homework for philosophy and not as much time as I need to do practicing my oboe for my major. So um, sort of around then too, I was taking music theory classes, right? Like learning the theoretical aspects of, of music composition and analysis. And I realized that what I liked about music was not playing it, but thinking about it. And um, so I, I spent some time sort of waffling around, you know, do I want to do music? Do I want to do philosophy? What do I want to do? But in all honesty, um, the philosophy department of my, at Miami at the time, well, and now still too, um, there were a lot of women professors, relatively young women professors. So I felt more engaged in the philosophy department as a female student interested in intellectual things than I did in the music department as a female student interested in intellectual things. So um, by the time I was a junior, I think, towards the end of my junior year, I decided, you know, yeah, I think I, think I can ask the questions I want to ask about music and about gender and about philosophy from a philosophy uh, program or a philosophy PhD. So I decided that like what I wanted to do was go to grad school in philosophy. And that's, that's what I did. Um, but I would definitely credit, I would definitely credit the fact that like there were lots of women faculty at Miami who made me feel really comfortable and took me really seriously as a student there. Right. Like that's probably why I ended up in philosophy and not something else. Oh, wow. Okay. That's, that's really interesting. Did, um, did you stay there for any of your graduate work? No, um, in part because I was, I lived in the same county as Miami was. So like I wanted to get out of there as fast as I could after graduating okay, okay. <laughs> more for personal reasons, right? Like I just wanted to get out of home. Um, so I went, I went straight to DePaul. Um, I graduated Miami in 2000 and started in DePaul in 2000, um, which ended up being a great place to be right when the dot-com bubble burst, right? Like all my friends who got these jobs were making a ton of more money than I did suddenly didn't have their jobs. And I had my crappy <laughs> graduate assistantship and I'm like, still have my crappy grad assistantship. <laughs> um, yeah, so I, I I did the straight through thing. I uh, I finished college in four years and grad school in five years, and I stuck around for another year at DePaul as a VAP while I was on the market, and then I got my job. So I took I took like the lightning track. Right. Through, wow. Yeah, through yeah. everything. Yeah. Yeah, that's really impressive. Um, when you were at DePaul, this interest in in music did that grow there? Uh, yeah, and um, I think it. For a lot of reasons, I was sort of, you know, Bill Martin was there doing stuff on music and we have sort of different approaches to it, but um, I could actually write about music and he would understand what I would say. But also at the time, there was a lot of, I think, freedom to write about as long as you could write about what you wanted to write about well. There's a sense of, you know, like I wrote this weird dissertation, Graham wrote this weird dissertation, right? So and by weird, I mean like not easily locatable in the then current norms of the field, I guess. Yeah, which, I mean, I, I think sometimes people in analytic philosophy don't think that there is a kind of norm in the SPEP world, but there very much is, yeah. Right, and actually the best advice I got was from Tina Chanter, my director, who said, don't write a figure dissertation, write a question dissertation. Right? So right. have a question, because that's that appeals to more people. Plus I think on the market that helped, right? Like I wasn't just an expert in this one figure, which would have made me more narrow, but I had, because I was asking a question, I had a broader range of things to offer. Well, what was your question? Um, 
so there were, there were sort of two parts to the question. Um, the first question was, wow, there are all these political philosophers that when they're trying to talk about embodied difference and inequality, they use music as this metaphor or example. And so what's up with that? Hmm. Right. Hmm. So um, the argument I made was that um, the sort of in the in modernity, you know, enlightenment modernity, there was a, a similar logic to how we thought about music and how we thought about bodies or so in the same way that like modernity thinks that um, inequality or difference is okay in civil society if and only if it's grounded in nature, mm. right? So because like there can be no inequality in civil society, only sort of the outgrowth of natural inequality, like the inequality of the genders or races or whatever. Right, right. Um, that was basically how music theorists at the same time thought about um organizing music right like if like any sort of hierarchies of chord functions and stuff that's all in the nature of sound right mm. so there's something about um this appeal to uh nature right and the, the sort of the way that um social institutions or musical structures are organized um on this idea of what nature is and its relationship to society that informs both how people thought about music theory and how people thought about civil society uh, in modernity. And so that's why they make good analogs for each other, more or less. Okay. And, and is this what the subject of your first book is? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, that's the first book. Okay. Um, and, uh, um, well, I guess we can move into talking about your current work if, if you'd like. Um, I don't know if you want to say anything more about your graduate experience, but um, uh, if you do, uh, more than welcome to. I, I mean, I was kind of curious if as you learned how to teach at DePaul, because I'm guessing that's where you were first doing your, mm -hmm. your graduate teaching. Mm -hmm. um, if uh, you, you sort of found ways or you sort of found out the ways that your uh, teachers at, at uh, Miami um, sort of created a, a space for you, were you able to find out what the techniques of that were for female students when you were at DePaul? Um, a little bit. I mean, part of it was just taking taking students seriously, um, especially if they didn't necessarily look like or seem like on first glance students who would be quote unquote successful, right? So almost kind of like letting their work speak for itself rather than just sort of assuming who's going to be brilliant or who's going to be competent or whatever. Um, and I, I see that in my teaching today, right? Like I even tell people like, I get frat boys in my intro classes and they're not used to thinking themselves as of themselves as intellectual, but like, it's really fun to show them like, no, you have ideas and you can be really smart. And like, that might not be how you normally understand yourself, but you have this capacity to do this, this really perhaps nerdy intellectual thing. So that's just taking students seriously, I think is the main thing I, I learned. Right. Um, and, and try to apply it in my own teaching today still. Um, right. Yeah. Right. Right. Well, um, I, part of the reason I'm asking is, uh, I'm teaching Mary Daly right now. I'm not mm -hmm. I don't know if you know her from mm -hmm. the world of theology, um, I guess philosophy too. Um, yeah. you know, but she, she would create after she got tenure, she would, um, ban men from coming to her classes. And there's all sorts of problems with, with Daly in terms of her transphobia. Yeah. Um, but this sort of creating a space where men don't, 
show up with the uh, presumptions that were kind of taught from a very young age that, you know, we, we deserve to be here. Um, I was wondering if that was something that you had had experienced at Ohio, or if it was a little bit less uh, sort of explicit. Um, it was less explicit, I think. Um, I mean, I think, I think a lot of like the teaching techniques that I've learned to develop in my own classroom, because I teach, like, I teach a lot of cross-listed classes with, like, men philosophers and women's women's studies students, and so, like, there's a lot of, sort of, politics of the classroom going on there, but, like, there's ways of using a lot of, like, nonverbal communication, um, or to, to, sort of, direct the flow of conversation, right, so, like, that it's not the men philosophy students who are always, sort of, dominating the conversation, right, or, um, you know, just sort of arranging the classroom in ways so that people can speak in small groups of people that they're comfortable with, right? Um, so, so I think there's a lot of, I guess what I learned is like, it matters the, it matters not so much what I say all the time, but also what I do and the sort of classroom management stuff that we don't talk a lot about, I think. Right. Um, <laughs> as professors, right? Like classroom management is something that we think of for um, like K through 12 teachers, but it's also something that that's really important for us to us to think about too. And maybe you don't want to call it management or whatever, but <laughs> <laughs> you know. <laughs> well, I, I'm in the middle of my third year review right now, um, which is you know kind of frustrating. It's it's mostly yeah. producing piles of papers to say oh, why yeah. you shouldn't fire me. And, and <laughs> but but I have a really great head of department, and she. Um, observed my teaching recently and we had a conversation because her only real critique was that I'm not disciplinary enough in the classroom and she's like I don't know how how you could work on that because it sort of goes against my stated pedagogy mm -hmm. um, but I totally know what you're talking about um, that management or uh, I don't know what a good word would be um, sort of how you set up the structure really does matter and sometimes calling people out as part of that not really in my nature, um, uh, but yeah, totally. I I'm, I'm a little obsessed with pedagogy, so I always ask people these questions. So you know, thanks for putting up with it. But um, you, you know, your your resistance to the term management there sort of brings me to a question I have that can lead us into your book. Uh, you, you're kind of res you're like maybe we need a different word. Management is obviously a very neoliberal word and concept mm -hmm. nowadays. Um, and much of your, your new book deals with um, resilience, which is also a very uh, neoliberal word. Um, and so mm -hmm. you're kind of writing between resilience and melancholy in the book. Um, do you want to tell us how you understand this term resilience in your work? Sure. And I, I have a really specific and technical understanding of it that comes from how it's sort of used in, in academia, in business, in psychology. Um, and I'm even sort of narrowing it down more than, than that, right? So we think of resilience in general as the ability to bounce back after a trauma or a crisis. Um, but the way I mean it is specific to um, both some musical structures, but more importantly to the way that um, women, white women, people of color, sort of, you know, non-white men get folded into white patriarchal privilege, right? Or it's, it's a specific way that um, feminine subjectivity or uh, black male subjectivity or uh, disabled subjectivity gets performed, right? So it has 
there's three sorts of there's three steps to it. So first you have to sort of perform some kind of damage or trauma related to your minority status so that everyone can see and understand it. Right. So like I could say like, oh, I'm a woman and the media tells me I should hate my body. So I had terrible body image. Oh, woe is me. Right. This is the Megan Trainer sort of thing. Right. Um, so that would be the first step. And the second step would be to to overcome that damage in some really spectacular and fantastic way, right? And the, the spectacle would be important as well, right? So you're performing this narrative of damage and then overcoming damage for other people to consume and take pleasure in. So that then in the third step, there's this, this profit that happens, right? Either your human capital is boosted in some form, right? So like Megan, can train, Megan Trainer can say like, or Taylor Swift can say like, un, unlike these women of color or skinny bitches or whatever, right? These women who are still deluded by patriarchy, I value myself unlike basic bitches or whatever. Does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. Um, um, no, it's really interesting too. Uh, so resilience um, in your understanding here is sort of, a, it's a performance. Uh, do you have much of it rooted in the kind of natural sciences use of the term resilience or is it mostly in this kind of uh bio well i mean biopolitics is you know taking a lot of stuff from the natural sciences but um is it mostly about just the performance of subjectivity for you um well it's it's the performance of subjectivity um but also i mean there's an aesthetics to it there's um right so like the way i talk about it in the book is um, there are these musical structures that we like to hear in EDM influenced pop that perform the resilience we're, we're supposed to embody, right? Like, so these song structures will, will literally sort of push our hearing to, to our, our, like to normally abled human ears limits of, um, hearing rhythmic intensity, right? So like in the same way that after 24 frames per second, we don't see individual images. We just see one continuous image. There's a similar point of dissolution of hearing where you don't hear individual beats. You just hear like a tone or silence or something. Mm -hmm. So this idea of sort of pushing and generating damage to then sort of land on this downbeat and come back even stronger than before, right? It's a similar sort of, of, of resilient structure, right? Like you perform this damage, you manufacture this damage or this noise, and then you overcome it in this spectacular way that gives you back more than you even started with. Um, so it's a, it's a, I, th I think the notion of resilience I'm getting mainly is from psychology, but there's also like resilience studies. Like there's an academic journal called resilience. That's sort of more about like the, um, the social or political understanding of resilient communities or resilient cities or resilience as a sort of value or capacity that we need to instill in people. Like people talk about training students to have grit or resilience, right? Um, so that no matter what they face, they can, they can overcome it and persevere, right? And it's a really necessary um, quality or capacity to have for you know, neoliberal subjects who are expected to be flexible and to sort of take whatever comes at them. Um, yeah, absolutely. So that, that's the sense in which I mean resilience mostly. Okay. Yeah, that's really great. And then uh, let's just take the next word in the subtitle since it seems it's part of the organizing of the book. Um, how do you understand melancholy then, especially in relationship to resistance? Um, or not resistance, resilience, sorry. Resilience, yeah. So I think melancholy 
well, melancholy is the term I used to describe uh, failed or misfired resilience. So it's, I'm departing from the sort of traditional philosophical Freudian understanding of melancholy as the failure to overcome or the failure to, um, to mourn or the failure to get over something, right? Because that's how Freud defines it, right? Like when you're melancholic, you can't get over your grief. It keeps going on and on and on and on and there's no closure. And that's fine. But the thing about neoliberalism is that um, nobody cares about closure anymore, right? Um, especially aesthetically. Like aesthetic closure is just done. Um, the Transformers movies don't resolve, right? Because there's nothing, right? It's just <laughs> resolution's not a pertinent aesthetic uh, feature for them. So when resolution doesn't matter, um, the failure to resolve is not a pathology. Instead, what I argue is that melancholy is the failure to, to optimize your damage, right? So it's not that you're failing to resolve it, but you're failing to turn it into a resource that's profitable for uh, bigger hegemonic institutions, right? So the example I use is, uh, or one of the main examples I use is Rihanna and her unapologetic album, which came out um, shortly after the really famous incident with Chris Brown, where he beat her uh, in the car outside uh, the awards show, right? So the big domestic violence thing. And every critic, it seemed from every major um, outlet, wanted to interpret that album primarily through her relationship to Chris Brown, even though the album wasn't necessarily about Chris Brown. And I think it's because Rihanna didn't she didn't perform the sort of resilience that we expected of her. She didn't say, I was a victim, but now I am strong, and I renounce Chris Brown as my abuser. I'm over him, done. See, look at me perform this overcoming of my specifically feminized damage as a victim of domestic violence, right? Mm -hmm. She just, I think she even had Chris Brown on the album, right? So it was just a sort of, it wasn't even an issue for her. She didn't present herself in the narrative of victim who overcomes trauma. Um, and you even hear this in her music, right? Like she, she doesn't call on these, um, these structures of that sort of farm damage in order to overcome it, right? She, so songs like Diamonds or Stay, they're very non-climactic in a sense, right? Like they're not um, sort of YOLO limit pushing in any way. They're just um, really, really calm, right? She even, uh, the end of the Diamonds video, for example, shows her just sort of floating in the ocean right just sort of up and down on and on going on and there again there's no there's a sense that like she's in trouble but it's not um damage that she's exploiting to spectacularly overcome she's just kind of uh what would you say um she's just living with her trauma right which might be okay. sort of what she needs to do right and so this is an important distinction right so there's tons of ways to over or not even just overcome, but to work through trauma or damage, but not all of those ways of working through trauma or damage are necessarily beneficial for broader hegemonic institutions. And so that's, that's what's specific to resilience, right? When you're resilient, your own personal overcoming feeds these broader social institutions. But when you're melancholic, your personal, uh, working through of your own trauma uh, might not adequately or might not at all support things like white supremacy. And, and that's what I think Rihanna is doing, right? She's dealing with her 
relationship with Brown and her trauma there, but it's not a narrative that we can sell as the sort of good woman who overcomes victimhood. Okay. So, I mean, this, this gets us to some pretty, pretty real places, um, obviously. Yeah. Um, so when, when you're talking through these sorts of issues, uh, uh, there's probably a kind of danger of being misunderstood. Have you found mm-hmm. that like when you present on this material, um, that there's some resistance to the way you're talking about Rihanna and Chris Brown in this situation? Um, and what, what are those, what do you think the sources of our, of those misunderstandings if they do happen? Um, I've definitely encountered that. And I think for a while it was just like, I wasn't being specific enough. Um, cause I, th- I think it's really important to emphasize that like resilience doesn't mean just getting over things in general. It means a very specific form of person, like work on the self that then becomes work for social normativity, right? There's ways of working on yourself that don't feed social normativity, right? Like another example that I've given with success is, um, so you know the um, the internet memes of the 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 welfare mother who spends lots of money on frivolous things or supposedly frivolous things like um, nail iPhone. art, oh, right. yeah, or right. yeah, or luxury designer bags or whatever. So that's often sort of presented as like really economically irrational, right, and like a bad decision, right? You know, if if you have if you don't have a lot of money, why are you? supposedly wasting money on these things that don't aren't perceived to be necessities right but you know on one hand if you have a society built on the idea that you are unworthy and constantly sends you derogatory messages to make you feel like shit um maybe doing things like um investing in your personal appearance right is a way of like protecting your own mental health and just sort of dealing with life Right. Yeah, absolutely. So um, why is it that these kinds of uh, self-care behaviors aren't seen as resilient? They're seen as pathology. Whereas other kinds of quote unquote self-care behavior behaviors are seen as as healthy and not as pathology. So I think um, one of the. The trickiest things to get is that. um the same behavior can read as resilience on one hand and melancholy and another, depending on the kind of body performing it. Mm-hmm. By which I mean like the positionality, right? Like, so what's the gender and race and nationality and social class of the person performing, you know, like this investment in one's appearance, right? So if it was a white woman getting a, a breast augmentation, right. And taking out a loan to do it, for example, we probably wouldn't, consider that as, as pathological or irrational um, as a woman of color on uh, social assistance spending much less money actually on on a handbag right, right? Um, so so there's no sort of um, universal applicability right positionality matters a lot and I think I think that's the one of the main things that it's been important for me to to communicate with clarity because that's one of the the main things that I think it's easy to misunderstand about what I'm trying to say, at least when I presented the work. Yeah. So, can you say a little bit more about how you see um, resilience undergirding things like white supremacy and patriarchy? Oh yeah. So, um, 
through readings of a number of music videos, but I think I think the the telephone video phone pair from Beyonce and Gaga is really instructive in this. So I think feminine resilience in particular, right? So presenting resilience as a way of overcoming feminized damage uh, is a really particular uh, particular technology of of post-identity patriarchy and white supremacy. So what happens is you get women saying, oh, there's misogyny and it exists and it hurt me, but I'm getting over it. And because I can get over misogyny, um, anyone who still feels like they experience sexism or misogyny, this must be a problem with them and not with society because sexism and society or sexism and misogyny, those are like problems of individual feeling, not problems of social structures, right? So um, when women perform resilience, they, they sort of naturalize patriarchy, right? By saying, oh, patriarchy is something that individuals are responsible for dealing with. It's not something, it's not a feature embedded in society. So there's that. But, and, but the other side of it is, um, and this is where the, the Beyonce and Gaga videos come in, right? So in both videos, um, there, the narrative of the video is there are men of color who are responsible for some sort of extreme misogynist behavior. So in video phone, right, it's the male gaze. And in telephone, um, right, they kill Beyonce's character's ex-boyfriend who's really abusive and misogynist in the, in the, to the other women in the video. Um, so in both of the videos, Beyonce and, Rihanna, or Beyonce and Gaga's characters perform their feminine resilience by killing men of color. Which is interesting, right? Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> so one of the things I'm trying to argue is that... Um, and I mean, white, feminim- white feminism has done this for a really long time um, of sort of blaming men of color, especially black men, for residual misogyny, right? I mean, you saw this in discussions of gangster rap in the 90s, but like you also see this in the, this is a couple months ago, there was that Hollaback Project video of the women walking through New York for hours and hours and getting street right. harassed and they edited out all the white guys, right? right? So there's this way in which, women's resilience gets not only does it sort of make patriarchy seem like something that mainstream white society is over but it specifically scapegoats urban men of color as responsible for any vestiges of misogyny right so thus in, they Which deserve more policing. right yeah exactly exactly and this isn't anything new i think it's just an a newer articulation of a of an old theme um, but I think it's really important for us to think about how um, what gets presented as feminist overcoming is actually this really white supremacist, white supremacist move. So, I mean, have you gotten any, I'm curious if you've gotten any pushback from womanist scholars um, about these sorts of questions, because, uh, uh, and, and if you've learned anything from that pushback. Um, I haven't gotten a lot of feedback so far. Um so I got a little bit when the, so a version of the Rihanna piece came out in the new inquiry a long time ago, like maybe two years ago. Um, but I think, I think the, the main sort of pushback I got was, um, was about how, well, actually 
black women are the most resilient population of all, right? Be- because they deal with the most uh, damaging uh, bullshit from society. But then that sort of maybe have to specify what I mean by what I mean by resilience more specifically. And that, you know, the sort of um, it's a specific technology that does the work of patriarchy and does the work of white supremacy in these specific ways, right? It's not just putting up with shit and thriving in spite of a world designed to kill you, right? It's actually uh, a way of performing nominally uh, healthful feminine or feminist subjectivity. Um, Because in a lot of ways, what I'm articulating could be related to something like what like what Alia Al-Sadi talks about in um, her article about uh, the racialization of Muslim veils, right? How there's these culturally racist feminisms, right? So like um, white Western feminists say like, oh, look at these Muslim women. They're so oppressed because they're, they wear veils, but yet we are so progressive because we can, you know, participate in public life, blah, blah, blah. And that sort of sets up a, a performance of a certain kind of feminism as a, as a white supremacist move. I think this is a par- it's a parallel sort of move that I'm, that I'm articulating, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, so, I mean, I, I guess part of the, the thinking behind this question is, you know, uh, so we had Cornel West speak here a couple of years ago at, at okay. uh, the school I teach at. Yeah. Um, and, you know, it was like Cornel West playing the Cornel West hits and, and for mm-hmm. our students, it's fantastic because they've never been exposed to mm-hmm. someone who really tries to think very critically and rigorously, but also has this real, lived commitment to to justice issues and uh, to speaking truth to power, all that sort of stuff um, that can be really electrifying when you're an 18 year old and you think school's just about, you know, bullshit or whatever. Yeah. 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 But then he started talking about um, black artists and he started talking about Beyonce and the room turned on him. Like the, the people in the room, uh, like college age people, we're kind of starting to, to freak out a little bit because um, and, and he didn't say anything particularly bad um uh sort of said you know she could be more committed to justice issues and um she's a great artist but um you know she could sort of i don't know do some stuff uh it wasn't wasn't that big of a deal but um there was this real sense that if you start attacking people's uh celebrity role models in this way you, you kind of get pushback and so i was also wondering if you've gotten that sort of pushback as well when you when you talk about art you know you're talking you're talking about something that's very connected to people's emotional life as well um yeah. which is different from the womanist critique but um i'm curious if how you respond to people who say like you know you're overthinking art or when you do this critical work you're making it seem like i can't like you know tay tay's new song or whoever uh, yeah yeah so that's a great question and i have a couple answers for it and the first is i think it's totally awesome for people to like things in complex ways that's probably the only way I like any philosophical writing. And that's probably the only way I really like any music, right? Like there's no sort of ethically or politically perfect philosophical text. Just there's, there's no sort of ethically or politically perfect song, right? So like, um, I like to read Adorno. Was Adorno a misogynist? Yes. <laughs> right? <laughs> yeah, yeah, you know. <laughs> so my liking is complex, right? Um, what else do I like? Um, trying to think of a good example here. Um, like, like I like Ludacris. Is Ludacris misogynist? Is he invested in some kind of respectability sometimes? Yes, right? So like I can, 
so I think it's okay to have a complex liking of artworks. Yeah, um, absolutely. That's fine. And I think a lot of pushback that I get comes from people who want, who, what they want their artworks to express is their political commitments. Yeah. Um, and I'm only sort of wrapping my head around how to articulate this now, right? But some people, like what they are aesthetically enjoying is the expressment of the political commitment. Whereas I think, um, like there's this other kind of aesthetic enjoyment that I think I'm more familiar with in my own everyday life that's really just like an aesthetic enjoyment that can then be complicated by like my political relationship to the work. So there's that, right? And I just try to tell people like, you know, in the same way that people are complicated, artworks are complicated. And so like, I might not like my brother's politics. I can still like my brother, mm. right? Mm. Um, so, the, the, so the, go ahead. Well, I mean, the, the pushback on that might be something like, well, at some point, you know, so uh, just to take a personal example, I have yeah. brothers in the military and, you know, at some point my, one of my brothers was saying things uh, that were so reprehensible. I finally had to break off a kind of relationship with him um, around Ferguson. Uh, I don't want to repeat it. It was just too, yeah. too ugly. Um, do you, do you have that sort of same relationship with art where there comes a point where the, uh, the tension is so much that something does break? Um, well, I think, it's also important to distinguish between the artwork and the people involved in making that artwork. Um, because if, if the artworks themselves, right, are the sites of these horrible things, then yeah, sure. But that's different than the artist sort of having crazy, like whack political views of his or her own, right? But then the artwork can be totally unrelated. Like, so, so there was a new Flo Rida song that came out recently that I just listened to today. And I obviously have no idea what Slow Rida thinks about anything. Right? <laughs> right. I mean, are you yeah. sure you, you guys aren't hanging out <laughs> on the weekends? Um, but I can like his song just fine, even though sometimes his songs are a little misogynist or just apolitical or just fun. Right? So I think, um, like, in the case of someone like Woody Allen, for example, like, um, it might be possible to like his artworks if the things that are horrible about him as a person are sort of sufficiently removed from his artworks. I mean, and you, you see this with philosophers too, right? Like how can you read Kant? Right. Like knowing. I've, I've always wondered that. I, yeah. <laughs> well, no, I mean, this is, this is sort of a debate, right? Like yeah. given this, you know, Kant's racism is Kant's racism central to his philosophical project or can there be, can you salvage like Kant minus racism and still have a, a coherent philosophical project? I think it's the same way with artworks, right? Like, so this person might personally have these awful views. Do they influence their artworks enough so that the artworks are disarticulable from the views? Or can you just sort of say like, um, I don't know. Uh, let me try to think of a good example. Well, like even, even like Taylor Swift, like I think, um, she's a total capitalist in a really pernicious way, but as a songwriter, sometimes she makes nice songs that I like to listen to, even though she's an evil capitalist, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, I, you know, I agree with you, uh, somewhat ashamedly because, uh, like even Shake It Off, I was really into the song until she does her sort of rap in the middle, which is 
very Christian youth group and embarrassing. Um, (laughs) I mean, she's, she's kind of interesting. And I I did notice you got a little, um, like someone got kind of upset on a blog post you wrote about shake it off. Um, uh, in part defending her because of her, her politics, Uh, you know, she's a philanthropist or whatever, but she's a philanthropist because she's a fucking rich person. (laughs) Right. Right. (laughs) Yeah, exactly. Exactly. And I think, I think, when you're studying artworks, like it's really important to remember that like what makes an artwork an artwork is that it creates meaning beyond what its author meant it to do. Right. So like, um, artworks can thankfully, thank God, artworks speak beyond their creators. Sometimes because artists are not very, um, smart, like beyond like their making sometimes because they have horrible views and you're like, thank God. Um, but also because like that's that's what art does, right? It it um it's and this is how it differs from theory in a lot of ways, I think, right? Like theory says this is what I'm telling you, or and art says or so like art says, well, when you do this and this, I wonder what happens. Right. And so people can make their own inferences, but theory generally says, when you do this and this, this is what happens. Let me explain it to you. Yeah. Yeah. Um I mean this is kind of an old philosophical point. Because uh, I think Socrates says something like like this. I can't remember which dialogue um, where he says the poets don't seem to really know what they're saying. Like a lot of times the, the poet's work is way better than what the poet then says the work is about. Um, yeah, yeah. No, that, I think that's the ion. That's the okay. ion. Yeah. You, you would know. I, I'm, <laughs> uh, you know, I did philosophy BA and then I, I gave up for, for some other stuff. But, yeah. um, but um I'm curious. I mean, that that can sound kind of like an authoritarian approach. How do you, how do you mitigate against that sort of, I am the philosopher, I will come and, and sort of say what this artwork is saying? Um, that's a good question. Um, I mean, part of it is that like, I don't assume that I have a definitive, like the definitive read. I usually sort of come at it in a question, right? Like, huh. Something's going on here. What's going on? Let's try to figure out from the bottom up what's happening. Um, and this this is maybe just kind of my training in music theory too, right? Like I'm trying to to sort of build a bottom up understanding of it, which you, like we can then argue about those details. I think, um, but I I also also try to like think in terms of questions. And this is something I definitely do on my blogs, and I do this in talks too. I don't do it in like formally published academic works as much because it's not the norm, but I usually say, this is as far as I've gotten, and these are my questions that I have next. So I think there's, um, I mean, there's a lot of ways that I at least try to do it, right? Try not to philosopher explain what what the artwork is about. Um, so you see it more as collaborative, uh, almost like... Um... I don't know, this is probably a cheesy example, but you're you're sort of doing a kind of mashup between the philosophy and the music. Is that is that kind of what you're saying? Um maybe, but it's also I think um maybe a better way to put it would be like I'm only partially interested in what what a song means. I'm more interested in what it does. Right. And if we can figure out what it does, that gives us some clues as to what it means. But I'm. I guess I'm not 
I don't see myself as sort of saying this is what it means or this is what it the significance of it is, but more just sort of saying, okay, what's going on here? Let's try to figure out what's going on and see what the song does. And then we can sort of maybe say things about what it means, but the meaning the meaning will vary, right? Like, um, so pop songs mean different things in different eras, right? Like if you're going to talk about a song from 1980, it's going to, it's going to actually work and sound differently now than it did in 1980. Yeah. Yeah. So I think, and, and this is good because I haven't actually thought about this before. Um, but yeah, I think I do try to sort of think about, well, what does a song do first and then get into what it means? So so that leads us to maybe um, uh, a chance to step back and just ask sort of your understanding of the relationship between politics and uh, art more broadly. Because, um, I mean, that seems to be kind of your focus, right? Bringing together mm-hmm. discourses in politics with discourses in art. So how do you understand these things relating to one another? Does one express one? Does one drive the other? Um, how, how do you see it? Um, I think I see it more in epistemological terms almost right like societies have to be organized in some way and like i largely see things like gender and race as ways of organizing society right um way of, ways of organizing people and the distribution of resources and and privilege and like who does what um but also artworks have to be organized in order to be like works of art and not just like noise right, that we can't inter- interpret as an anyth- anything intelligible. So the, the relationships between art and politics that I'm interested in happen in this epistemic level of, of organizing systems, right? So like societies are organized because we appeal to some basic concepts or logics, right? Like gender would be a logic or white supremacist uh, racism would be a logic, right, of how society is organized, right? Because there's like two genders, maybe we're, maybe if you're Facebook, there's 50 genders, but, um, by keeping track of, of these genders, we can sort of determine like who wants to be advertised, what, or what kind of bathroom you should use. Right. So, um, there's a political, there's, there's a logic that organizes political relations in the same way that there's a logic that organizes, um, formal relations and aesthetic relations in an artwork, right? So um, uh, one thing that musicologists talk about is how um, certain sounds get gendered or feminized, right? So there's um, there's a book, uh, it was the first book in feminist musicology by Susan McClary, and she, she sort of shows how um, dissonance gets feminized, right? So in the same way that patriarchal society um, constitutively excludes femininity, right? Like they sort of uh, raise this sort of specter or ideal of femininity as that which must be eliminated. That's how dissonance works in classical tonal music, right? Like there's dissonance and you have to evoke it in order for there to be conflict, but the song makes sense only when you eliminate the dissonance, right? So there's an organizing logic that patriarchy and tonal harmony share, Um and that's what they have in common. So, so that's that's my approach to the relationship between art and politics. Trying to find the the structures, the epistemic structures, or organizing structures by which society makes sense, or by which a piece of art makes sense, right? So, 
how are they organized similarly according to similar codes or practices? And so I, I'm assuming that part of the reason why you, you do this kind of analysis is you're interested in ways that can escape it, um, can escape the logic of neoliberalism and patriarchy and, and racism. Um, how have you come up with any ideas for for alternatives to sort of this vision of resilience? Yeah. Um, so I think part of the reason why I like thinking through music is because like as a theorist, I can identify all the crappy logics that of racism and sexism and stuff that are happening. But I think theorists often get into trouble when they try to sort of purely theorize a resistance or a solution or a response. Because I think actually there are plenty of people out there right now finding ways of responding and doing things differently uh, in their own ways. And I think you can hear that in 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 music, right? So rather than trying to invent a solution or an alternative out of thin air, I'm trying to see like, well, what are other people doing? Right. And I, I think Rihanna is an example of that. Um, I think, um, so even, even Beyonce has, has a really interesting take on resilience. And I haven't, I haven't actually talked about this in the book, but like, so for example, the, the 2013 album where she was like explicitly branding herself as a feminist. I think that was a way for her to perform a certain kind of respectability in a way that allowed her to do more with less criticism and pushback. Right. So like people were all over Nicki Minaj uh, for the Anaconda cover and stuff like that. Um, And Beyonce in her performance, maybe not on her album cover, but on her performances, right? Like, um, it's really hard to tell the difference, right? Like she's showing just as much skin and being just as revealing. But I think because she sort of says, like, there's this banner that says feminist in the background, right? She, she sort of gets it both ways, which is, I think, exactly what she's trying to do, right? She's trying to um, push back, but in a way that doesn't get her stomped on in the process, if that makes any sense, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, there's one, there's an aspect of this that um, if you're not, if you're not unlucky enough to have come out of a kind of evangelical Christian subculture that you sometimes still check in on, mm-hmm. um, you may have missed. But, uh, you know, Christians were writing sort of, you know, the new inquiry style theory op-ed pieces um, about Beyonce celebrating marriage, Um in you know the drunken love um you mm-hmm. know, they might have a problem getting drunk but they were like oh <laughs> see like like sex and marriage that's what she's talking about how hot sex and marriage can be um which was kind of interesting because it was a way to kind of perform her you know sexuality but it was still couched for some of these christians in the patriarchal form of marriage um which might, I don't know, kind of suggest something a little bit sad about the attempt to break out of um, of the logic that you're identifying. Uh, I don't know if you had come across any of that, probably. No, but I mean, I had seen some people sort of talking about like the, you know, the celebration of, of heterosexual married sexuality. And I think like on the one hand, it's really complicated because like, okay, so 
it's a nuclear family that she's talking about, but it's a black nuclear family. So that complicates things. Um, especially when these, like these same conservatives that are probably celebrating her for celebrating marriage, um, pathologize black families. So, so I think it's yeah. really complicated, yeah. but I also think that like, there's no singular solution. There's just various ways of sort of carving out tiny little spaces of less bad, right? That then maybe when you put them together, make more of a difference, but I'm, I'm not looking for the, the revolutionary solution. I'm really looking at what people are doing like with their own artwork to deal with um, all the various pressures and sort of remain legible as, as an artist and have a sustainable career as an artist, but also yet um, do that in a way that's both sustainable for them and not totally soul crushing, but also um, has for that fact has some political import. Mm. Right. So like, what are the, the strategies? How are people being really strategic and, and sort of working both with and against um, the political logics that are really damaging? Cause I don't think like, especially if you're trying to be a pop star, um, you're not going to be able to sort of present something completely politically radical and, you know, get, um, get on the Grammy awards for it. Yeah, right. right, right. <laughs> but at the same time, you know, um, this is the power of pop, right? Like it pop can reach people that otherwise wouldn't have access to more radical stuff. Hmm. Right. So, um, and I mean, this is sort of, um, it's something that I think about a lot cause I was, my family wasn't evangelical, but I lived, you know, I was a, my family was very conservative and I lived in the Ohio suburbs and like this is before the internet. I didn't have access to a lot of stuff. So like what I got of feminism, I got from pop culture. So yeah. I think it's really important to have these narratives accessible. And if it means you have to make some compromises, right. I mean, this is like the story of the clash signing to Columbia, right? Like <laughs> um, <laughs> ideological purity sometimes is, is uh, a cost worth, accessibility yeah 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 uh, so i'm curious if you have thought about the difference between your your conception of resilience which um strikes me as like really remarkable and, and really original um but uh, a difference between that and you know the work of fred moten and what he identifies mm -hmm. as fugitivity mm -hmm. yeah um so i think what i'm talking about with resilience is something mostly specific to white women so that would be a big difference. <laughs> okay, right? that's, that's pretty big, yeah. <laughs> um, and resilience is something that we expect white women to perform in order to demonstrate their good white womanness, right? It's the new version of the good girl, right? Um, so instead of, whereas traditionally we expected white, you know, good white women to be things like fragile and chaste and delicate, um, we now expect good women to come to, I guess what you could call white feminist consciousness, right? Like, Oh, I should love my body rather than hate it. Um, speak beautiful, right? Like everything dove has ever said ever about yeah. like, and, women. Yeah. Right. And you kind of identify this with the lean in, uh, right. movement a bit in the book, if I remember right. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, I would say like the, 
the major difference between like what I'm doing and, and what someone like Moten is doing is, is like he's identifying a strategy of resistance, but for me, resilience is actually a strategy of normativity. Right. That right. might have at one time been a strategy of resistance, but I mean, this is this is the sort of neoliberal thing, right? Like we're co-opting formerly resistant strategies and making them productive because it's easier to co-opt them than to uh, than to eliminate them, right? Make noise productive rather than than eliminate noise or reduce it. So. So that's, that's, I think, the big difference. Okay. Um, so, I mean, I, I realize we haven't talked a lot about melancholy. Um, that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I, I think I live that too much, so maybe I've been trying to avoid it. But um, I, I am curious, uh, you, you decided to go with zero books for this project. Mm -hmm. uh, was there any reason behind that for you? Uh, any, like, theoretically interesting or politically interesting reason why you chose a non-UP, uh, a non-academic press? Sure. Um, first, I think the project sort of spoke to that, right? Like, it's it's a crossover project. I think it, it will interest people outside of academia, right? Pop music, feminism, these are things people care about, right? Not just academics. And I tried to write for that audience. But, so I went for zero for that reason, because that's, that's their target audience, right? Like, the sort of that crossover, right? Bo both within and beyond academia. But I also like, I wrote a, I wrote a book, I got tenure, it was with an academic press. I wanted to write a book people could buy. <laughs> yeah. I, <laughs> I mean, I, I have to be honest, you know, I, I went to go see if I could just buy your first book. Cause I was like, Oh, I should probably check that out before I have run. And I was like, I, I can't afford it, which is the yeah. same thing with my first book. You know, it's 80 bucks. Um, yeah. Yeah, no, and th that was really important to me, right? Like, um, <laughs> not just for, like, selfish reasons, but also, like, like just accessibility re reasons, right? Like, people should be able to engage ideas, and, and they should be able to, to access them. Um, so, yeah, I wanted a book people could buy, and that, that was really important to me. And I'm, I'm working on a, another manuscript right now, because originally, originally I, this was together with this new manuscript that I'm working on. I thought it was one book project, but then I realized it was two. That was really helpful. <laughs> um, and I'm actually the cost thing is a huge issue for me. I think the the follow-up book is more, it's more academic in tone, but I still don't want, like, I don't, I, I've got tenure. So I think I don't want to ever publish another like 60 or $80 book again. Well, I mean, it's, it's fucking evil. I mean, and it's crazy. The publisher's, I don't see how it uh, costs them any less to do a print-on-demand than in paperback that's more affordable than a 400 print run of a hardback book, hoping that a couple libraries will buy it and, and help them break even. While the people who wrote the book, I mean, you know, we don't get anything for most of these texts, and that's not the reason we write them. But no. I, I mean, I totally hear you. Yeah, no, I still get a zero dollar royalty check from Rowan and Littlefield. <laughs> yeah, I published the book what, like five years ago. Yeah, it's always a fun little moment. But, but yeah, and I mean, I know that academic publishers are under a lot of pressure, and that the business model, like, we need a better business model for academic publishing. But I think people like Zero and Repeater, and even places like Verso, um, have found ways to publish intellectual books that a general audience can actually 
even than undergraduates, right? Like not just a general audience, but like students can can actually afford to buy. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, yeah, that was that's like an ongoing issue for me. H have you have you found like any pushback amongst colleagues, or are they generally sympathetic? Um, I have a really great department, um, so I haven't gotten any pushback at all on the on the local level. Um, my university is also really interested in like publicly engaged scholarship. So, um, you know, it's, it's not a super fancy, like super elite research university. So this, um, this book actually sort of is pretty consistent with, with how my university and department sees itself. So I'm, hmm. I'm lucky on that score. And I realize that most schools aren't necessarily like that, but, um, I mean, it's also it's also a post tenure book, right? Like, I d I could do whatever I wanted, and doesn't necessarily need to do anything for me. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> like, that's the point um, of tenure, right? Right, right. So, but I I mean, what I hope it does is sort of set a a kind of a precedent for junior people, right? Like, oh, this person who's tenured and nominally respectable, they published this kind of book. It's okay for an academic to publish this kind of book. So maybe you can get tenured on that kind of book in the future. Hmm. Um, which I think I would like to see that eventually, right? Like I would like to see um, more engaged work uh, sort of count more as academic work. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. So what's the, uh, what's the second manuscript? What's the focus of that one? Um, I'm, I'm in the middle of it. <laughs> so it's, I, I think I finally hit on it, but the, the general argument is that the, the various phenomena we call quote unquote neoliberal, so things like neoliberal political economy, algorithmic culture, post identity politics, um, those are the three big ones. Um, they all share an underlying episteme or epistemology that I'm calling quote unquote sonic. Um, or things like markets and life and algorithms are thought to work like we think sound works. And this is a big shift from modernity, right? So like you get Foucault's The Order of Things that's about the classical episteme and it starts off with an analysis of a painting about the gaze, right? So there's this sort of ocular centrism to modernity. And what I'm arguing is that for various reasons, um, part of what neoliberalism does to kind of upgrade itself from modernity or present itself as doing something new and better and different is to shift toward... Uh, an epistemology or an episteme that that's less visual and more quote unquote audiological or sonic, right? And by sonic, I mean, um, so contemporary acoustics understands uh, sounds to work, right? Such that uh, there's all these frequencies happening and what we hear as signal actually emerges from lots of noisy interacting frequencies, right? Like this is how pitch works basically. And that sort of idea of dynamic emergence of signal from noise is fundamental to neoliberal political theory. It's, it's absolutely fundamental to big data and algorithmic culture, but that's also how post-identity politics tend to work, right? Um, so that's, that's the general argument of that book. Thanks for listening to this conversation with Robin James. Um, I'm going to put up a podcast soon of the talk that I did with Alex Dublay and Daniel Coluccio-Barber in Liverpool this past June. 
uh, after that, I'll also put up the audio from the Micrologics of the Postsecular uh, that had some really fantastic papers this year at the AAR. But uh, as you probably noticed, I have not been doing this very regularly. That's not likely to change, and I'm going to stop with the false promises that it will. Uh, unfortunately, I don't have too much extra money to uh, commit to paying for the kind of equipment that would make this easier to do on a more regular basis. And hopefully you find it valuable enough as it is when it's free. So we'll see. Hopefully I'll sit down with some people soon and we can chat. Uh, but yeah. I wish I could tell you the name of some of those men who educated me that I talked about at the beginning of the podcast, but for their own protection and the protection of the program that they are leaders in, I can't. I hope, though, that as this holiday season goes on and you're looking at all of the ugliness in the world, that you are able to remember your name is your name.